Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, ooh, I am so excited for you to hear this episode. It is smart, it's funny. I cannot wait for you to hear from her. Karen Norrington Reeves. She is from the Chatham area of Chicago. She is a public servant and change agent with 30 years of experience in job creation, education, advocacy, community development. For the past decade, Karen has been the CEO of the Chicago Cook Workforce Partnership, the nation's most extensive and effective publicly funded workforce development system. Under her leadership since it began in 2012, the partnership has focused on connecting people to careers and businesses to high quality talent, impacting Chicagoland's neighborhoods and business communities. Among Karen's leadership accomplishments in the past decade are the roughly 100,000 people placed in long-lasting careers and her management of half a billion dollars of economic investments in job training, emplacement, and business development space she sits in. She recently announced her run for the South Side and Southwest Suburban 1st Congressional District, and she received the endorsement from Rep. Bobby Rush, bringing the CEO of Chicago one step closer to being the first woman elected from the district. Go, Karen. We like this, Karen. See, Zawadi Morris is back. Welcome back, Zawadi. Zawadi is an award-winning journalist and a Chicago native who moved to Brooklyn in 1997. In 2013, Ms. Morris launched the Brooklyn Reader, an online news source covering the neighborhoods of central Brooklyn. And in 2020, she launched its nonprofit sister site, Scribe, a collaborative news source for investigative local journalism. Ms. Morris is also the executive producer of the COVID-19 Writers Project. And let's welcome back my young star. She's all grown up, though. Kenise Mobley, everybody, stand-up comedian, recently made her late-night debut on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. This year, Kenise worked on the BET Awards and By Us For Us, a sketch comedy series presented by Color of Change. She hosts Complexify on Vice News, and check out her podcast, Make Yourself Cry, which I was on, available on Planet Scum. February 12th, check me out at Still Stacks at ArtQuest in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And on February 25th, I'll be at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah, this girl is back on the road with a mask. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function on the Friends Like Us for Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail, Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast, and Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend, leave us a tip or a donation, just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us special shout out to our patreon friends it's because of you we keep going merch is available we have t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs face masks and tank tops all available go to marinafranklin.com and weekly yes that's every saturday at 3 p.m eastern standard time we go live on my youtube channel i go live with my assistant evelyn frick my wacky friend Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave us reviews. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stopping by, like Von DiCarlo stopped by this week. And sometimes we even offer free stuff, like tickets to comedy shows. 
And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still. Um, the variant is not all the way gone. Get vaccinated. Booster up. And Black Lives Matter. I am so happy to have this show today. It's a really important show. I was just telling my guest, who is a new friend of our show, that, you know, although we're comedians and, and we're really, you know, we do a lot of funny stuff, we like to have people who know what they're talking about on our show. <laughs> we like to talk about serious things because I don't know what I'm talking about. Sometimes I get quotes wrong. We're in a very serious time right now. And so comedians, they say we're like truth tellers. Well, I mean, not all of us, but it's a time when we talk about this stuff on stage, but I want to get it right when I talk about it. So welcome Karina Nor Norrington Reeves, who is in Chicago. We also have Zawadi Morris, who is also from Chicago, and uh, Kanice Mobley, like I said, my young star is here. So Karina, I just want you to tell us about yourself. Now, I know you are a public servant, and um, did I say, why did I have Karina here? See, I'm already starting off wrong. Because, because you're, you're blending into your own name. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I have, I have put, I copied Karen, sorry. So Karen, which is a, it's gotta be a difficult name to have right now because they use it so often. I guess that's okay, why I put why it mine is spelled with an, it's why mine is spelled with an I, but you know, you can't see that when you say it. <laughs> Listen, I say all Karens have no color anyway, so it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> okay. But I'm not that, but I'm not that Karen. That's the thing. I'm not that Karen. So tell me, Karen, now that you are, let's see. Okay. I want to get this right. Public servant changed agent with 30 years of experience in job creation, education, advocacy, and community development. So this is my big question to you because I have been trying to be involved in my community in Harlem, New York. What does it mean to be a public servant? So public service for me is about committing yourself to helping individuals and the community collectively reach its best self. So I've had people talk about politicians. I'm not a politician. I am truly about how can I use the gifts that I've been given, the network that I have created and developed over the years. How can I use all of those resources and tools at my disposal to help individuals and to help community be better, attain more, uh, close the racial wealth gap and, and accomplish what people choose to accomplish in their lives. Nice. I, I feel like, um, Kenise, do we do that <laughs> as comedians? I'd say we try. Uh, do we succeed? I, I can't say for sure. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I know that sometimes I've, I think our material could open the eyes of people. Like I definitely think when I talk about like the gentrification in a funny way, people go, Oh my God, they don't have fresh tomatoes in Harlem. What does that mean? You know, Zawadi is um, from the Brooklyn reader. And can you tell us like, cause I believe you are definitely a public servant. What does it mean to you? Or am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> I hope I'm a public servant. That's why I chose um, news publishing. Um, I saw it. I agree with Karen. Um, so I run a newspaper, a daily news site that that covers uh, Central and North and part of East Brooklyn. And um, one of the biggest reasons that I went into it is because I felt that I wanted to see a more engaged community, particularly communities of color, particularly underserved communities. I wanted to see them uh, become active and uh, motivated members of their society. And I felt that news was not the only, but one medium to uh, achieve that. And I wanted to change our relationship with news. I, I didn't feel it was too often because before I got into this, I was I was actually in corporate for about 10 years. And there were too many moments at the water cooler where, uh, you know, discussions would come up about what was going on in the news. And those of us with a little melanin in our skin kind of retracted and retreated and didn't become a part of the conversation. And I found myself the only one just speaking up. And I, and I, I knew it wasn't because we didn't have an opinion. I felt as though we didn't feel as informed to speak um, openly about topics. And I wanted to change that because I knew we had an opinion. I knew we had our experiences that we needed to share, but that coupled with information and, and facts um, makes a very powerful voice. And so I just wanted to make our voice powerful and then uh, give us the confidence to, to go out and take that voice and uh, change our community. Wonderful. So Karen, I was, you know, Leah, my sister, who, you know, is much better at this than I am. <laughs> but she introduced me to, she was like telling me that you're running, that you're running, right? You're running for office. Is it, it's, is it Alderman? No, ma'am. I'm running for Congress for the U.S. House of Representatives. Oh, all right. So I was on Zoom for like, <laughs> I got that so wrong. All right. So She's you're like, ready. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So I was there on Zoom for like a split second. I was watching and I was just listening to you and I was like, she's just so wonderful. Like you say you're not like a politician. Now, when you go to Congress. Is that going to change or? No, I hope not. I, I have given all of my friends and family and colleagues permission to grab me by the shoulders and shake me if they see me change in any way, shape or form. At the end of the day, I was in D.C. last week. And it's interesting because I've been to D.C. a gazillion times in my life. I used to spend my summers there. I used to work there. I used to live there. Uh, but this trip last week just, I saw it through different eyes. And um, while I was there, I met with a number of people and several folks, a, a former congressman actually, and some lobbyists said to me, we need you to continue with your heart for service. And you've demonstrated that in your professional life. You've demonstrated it in your personal life, but that's the kind of influence that we need in Congress because everything is so partisan right now and so divided um, that they really are are wanting to support candidates that are coming in with a different perspective and with a perspective of how do we reach one another human to human to address the issues that are happening on the ground in our communities. And to me, that goes beyond whatever your political affiliation might be. It really is about wanting the best and bringing the best to Congress, to policymaking and understanding how those policies impact people day-to-day, real life on the ground. And so my, my challenge is 
um, you know, I got to raise money. I got to build out my apparatus in order to make sure that that happens. And I am endorsed by the outgoing Congressman Bobby Rush, who, if you all know your history, it was a former Black Panther uh, who became a city councilman and then a congressperson. So I have big shoes to fill and I'm grateful that he believes in me and my ability to bring something positive to this body. But I think the the really important thing is that we move away from sort of this partisan division that is not focused on what's best and right for the people. What do you see that's that? I mean, that's just all of that history is in there. Like Zawadi, did you know that? about Bobby Rush in Chicago? Yeah. You, that he was a congressman, though. Yes, yes. You don't, you, you, we were there when he was. I didn't, I, you know what? Sadly, I did not know. No, that he was <laughs> the actual congressman. 30 years, did, 30 years, Marina, he's been in that. So, I had, but, no, but you I know, that's the Black how Panther part. I did not know the Black Panther. Oh, oh, yeah. So I I knew about the congressman. He was a very popular one, but I did not know about the black. I think we were too young to know the historical reference of, you know, Black Panther later, maybe. But I yeah, I remember Bobby Rush was like next to uh, Harold Washington. He was like one of the more uh, well. I remember Harold Washington. Yeah. (laughs) But like, yeah, but I and I. Yeah, go ahead. So Marina. Bobby Rush actually took Harold Washington's seat. Harold Washington was a representative of the first district yeah. of Illinois oh, okay. in, in Congress and then ran for mayor of the city of Chicago, became the first black mayor. Bobby Rush also occupied that same seat in the first district. So if I win, I will be the first woman in in the history of Congress. Wow. I mean, just ridiculous in the history of this country over a hundred, you know, 18 years uh, to occupy that seat and represent the first district of Illinois. So it's a, it's a big deal. And there's a lot of history tied up in that seat. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was a black Panther back in the day. Now here's the thing, you know, he's the same age as my mother, right? So that is part of the disconnect for us as the, the next generation and not understanding all the rich history that's there. Yeah. You know, it's so fascinating because like I lived in Chicago, but I really did not know about a lot of the politics in Chicago, except for like Harold Washington and, you know, uh, Carol Mosley Braun, Carol. Yeah. Carol Mosley Braun and um, Daly and um, the, the one female mayor. Um, I'm pretty good. Jane, Jane Byrne. Byrne. Thank you. Oh my God. I haven't heard that name. in so yes. <laughs> yeah. Jane Byrne. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, le- and don't forget, we have a female mayor now. Oh, yeah, Lori, Lori Yes. We'll get to the, and, but I, and that we all know, we all know now. I, I know I'm not a Chicago person, but I, I have seen memes about her <laughs> endlessly. She is highly memed. Highly memed. <laughs> she was highly memed during COVID. That is very true. Yes. Very true. And before it, because of the pants, right? <laughs> okay, she Marina. does not have someone to cut the bottoms of them off, <laughs> apparently. She doesn't okay. know a tailor. I, I need to be real clear before y'all come up in here and get me in trouble. <laughs> no, we're not attacking. I, we're just saying we're just saying I, what was out there. I am a dual appointee of Mayor Lightfoot <laughs> and Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. So y'all be nice to my ladies, my sisters who will leave. Well, this is a good and, place to then go in and say, how do you... 
because you're not a politician, but you do have to answer some tough questions about her. So how do you how do you do that and still stand your ground as especially with everything that's going on with the Chicago uh, public school system right now? Right. So listen, and I have two kids in Chicago public schools. And so, you know, I, I divorce myself from the hat that I wear as a mother and the hat that I wear as a public servant with an obligation to, um, you know, be responsible and accountable to a, a number of elected officials. Uh, and I think I've deftly navigated that now for more than a decade in the role that I've occupied. I oversee or have overseen up until this point because I'm on a leave now, but I've overseen the, the workforce development system for the city of Chicago and Cook County for over a decade. And so it has taken uh, every bit of uh, political acumen and, um, you know, all of my negotiating skills from law school to be able to navigate both sides of the fifth floor, which is the seat of power in Chicago. So one side is the mayor's office and the other side is the Cook County Board President's office. And so, uh, you know, I've had to navigate that. I don't make apologies for uh, any of, of the elected officials. They have to be answerable to the electorate that put them in office. But at the end of the day, one of the uh, vantage points that I have is behind the scenes, seeing the stress, the strain, the, uh, the angst, the anguish, uh, all of the work that goes into the decisions that they have to make and them recognizing that, um, you know, they're going to take hits on, on things. I mean, I, I've told the mayor directly to her face. It's like, you got a crap job. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just hard. Like nothing you do is good enough for somebody. Right. But at the end of the day, you've got to make, you got to make hard decisions. That that's what you're, that's what you're tasked with. Yeah. It's a, a tough time to be in charge. I would say. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And we're going to get into more of that in a second, but I do want to say, I, um, you know, because you're, you're in Chicago and because you're in specifically um, the Chatham area, which is where my grandmother's house is still, you know, and can you tell me what it's like? Cause I remember on the zoom when you were announcing your run that you were talking about what it's like to hear, you know, guns and, and, you know, hear to hear that outside your window, how has Chicago changed yeah. in that way in that neighborhood? Real talk, real talk. I've been in this community since uh, 2003. I, we bought our home here, my ex-husband and I. And, um, you know, this proliferation of gun violence and hearing gunshots, it's really been prominent, prevalent, I would say the last two and a half to three years. Um, this is not normal. And, and it shouldn't be normal for anybody in this country. It shouldn't be normal for any of our children to have to experience this. You know, from my son who just turned 17 to, um, you know, to regularly say, oh, mom, you know, that was a, that was a automatic, you know, <laughs> that was semi-automatic. Like, why, why, why should you even know that? Right. Um, but then I think back to when I taught, you know, I was an elementary school teacher. I taught in Compton, California in the nineties at the height of the civil unrest. And it wasn't normal for my students then either, but they dealt with helicopters flying overhead every day. 
And I don't think I ever thought I'd see it in Chicago, but it, it is, it is here. And it's not just here. Uh, certainly this is my vantage point, but it's all across the country. And I think there is a collective cultural shift that is happening that really is about the lack of economic mobility, the persistence of poverty, the persistence of disinvestment in infrastructure and disinvestment in community that has created the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. And to me, the gun violence is not the issue. It's the symptom of the larger issue that's really going on. Yeah. Like, um, Zawadi's article in the Brooklyn Reader actually points to that in the. Um, I'm just impressed that you always do your your homework, Marina. I <laughs> you, try my you, best. You I always have to. You always reference an article of mine. I appreciate it. I'm trying. I, I this is why I do this. <laughs> I mean, but I, you know, the thing is, is like my eyes are going bad, so I can't see everything. Do you remember which article it was, Sawadi? I, I know. I thought I put it in there. We publish several a day, and so and a lo- quite a bit of it has to do with violence. So I'm not really sure which one. I think it's about this um, New York City Mayor Adams. And how um, the rise in gun violence and he's reinstating a controversial plain clothes police unit back into the streets, you know, and I guess I bring that up because I'm also wondering, like, you know, as compared to New York City, like in Chicago, they're doing the same thing, but there's a different conversation around it. Am I right? So there's, you know, there have been a, a number of different tactics taken to try and stem gun violence within the city of Chicago. And, you know, some of the successful work was done with the CAPS, which is the community policing strategies. Um, And certainly the plainclothes operations has always been something, uh, you know, I think that police forces across the country are struggling with this. We're seeing a rise in carjackings across the country. We're seeing a rise in, um, you know, in, in, in gun, um, gun crimes. It's, this is just a national issue. Now, I will say I kind of, kind of, sort of, sort of jokingly refer to it as post-pandemic psychosis. I mean, I really do feel like there is some truth to, you know, people just being cooped up and um, reaching the limits of their mental wellness, yes. you know? So, Zawadi, what did you say to that? I mean, of what we were just talking about with the um, police being brought back out into the streets. And uh, Kanise, you can jump in after that. Like, because this is a big conversation, like, and you're right, like mental health. We see a young lady who was just pushed in front of the, a train. I take the train, like, pretty often. It's the easiest way to get from A to B in New York City. Everybody takes the train. It's not like an elite thing. It's not, you know, you see celebrities on the train, you know. But it's crazy down there. You know, I got to be honest, like when I do see cops, I'm a little relieved that they're there because I don't have anything to protect myself. I have nothing. If I use it, if if I have mace, that's illegal. But I get the stop and frisk thing in New York wasn't helping. It wasn't a great solution or in the way that they enacted it years ago. It wasn't working on to protect us. It was actually a disservice. I'm like caught in the middle of what I need 
and what I know is not going to be helpful in a, in a larger picture for the black community. So I don't know. Um, I'm opening this up to you uh, too, Zawadi. What are, what, are, what are your feelings on this? So I'm I can not stop really... talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard for me to really speak on the planes, plain clothes officers, whether or not that's going to be a good move or not. I remember the plain clothes officers, um, particularly in the nineties, you know, um, that they were prevalent everywhere. Um, I'd have to see the numbers to really be able to speak about whether or not it's a good move. But I just, I, I do know that um, more to what Karen was saying that uh, what we're seeing, I think right now is uh, a symptomatic of the pandemic, or I should say that the pandemic turned the heat up on everything that was happening um, before. We're now at uh, boiling temperature and we're seeing the, you know, direct uh, result of everything that was kind of, kind of bubbling under the surface. It's, it's just come out. And I, you know, we hear about Regina King's, you know, son who, who, who committed suicide. Um, I have an, another friend's uh, nephew, a friend of mine, contacted me yesterday. Their son committed suicide. He's 23. Uh, my husband's um, godson committed suicide uh, about six months ago. Um, the suicide rate amongst young folks and the mental illness that's happening out on the street. I know you've seen Marina and, and Kenise, like people walking around the street, just yelling, just yelling. I've, I've seen so many people just doing that, just like yelping out, you know, for, for no reason. Um, we're we're sad right now. <laughs> the country is sad, and I, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but um, we're just think about how what you do every day, just in your regular life. We're pretty much in decent positions right now in our careers, and you know uh, we have everything that we need in our lives. And just think about how much work it takes to stay motivated and, and happy and encouraged. Like even for myself, I have really nothing to complain about, but yet I fight every day for my mental health. I have to do things, you know, that keep me from spiraling, you know, um, and I don't have any one thing I can point to that's just so depressing. It's just that um, it's everything kind of, you know, all together. So imagine us being in, you know, having what we have and then compare it to someone that has nothing and where that can take you mentally. I really think that as a nation, we just have a serious reckoning that uh, we have to deal with. Because it's affecting everyone mentally. It's not just those that we claim are mental illnesses. Everybody's fighting for their mental health, I, I believe, right now. It's such and a great point. Yes. I agree. Thank you. Kanice, did you want to? Uh, yeah. I Yesterday I was on the train and a boy hopped because he didn't want to walk down because one side was kind of closed. And so he didn't want to walk down. So he instead of walking around and kind of like going around the entire station, hopped onto the train track, walked across it and hopped off right as the train was coming. And we're all standing there like thinking we're about to see this kid get hit by a train. And there's this terror, but like people are trying to help him up and hearing about the thing where a lady got pushed in front of the train tracks. And that happened also right before I moved here. I'm not making a coherent argument. And I recognize that it's just, there is so much stress in that situation now all of the time, like in a way that there wasn't before. I've seen more people just smoking in the train and in the train stations. People are just clearly like, I don't care. I need this moment. And I don't, it doesn't matter to me 
what anyone else has going on or that this is illegal. I need this. So I'm doing it. That seems to be the attitude. One of the conversations that I'm hearing is that everybody needs help. Like everybody. Like it seems like teachers need help. Police, they need help. They actually, for the first time, I've never seen the police commissioner go, we need your help. You know, therapists need our help. (laughs) I, I really believe in community, like community outreach and community boards and, you know, conversations like this need to be happening like daily, weekly within the community. It can't, all of these systems are not working independent. They can't work independent. They just can't. And so I don't know. And the government can enact all these programs, but one of the things, you know, one of the things they need to talk about, start talking about is how do you get like on this block? There should be, I was just thinking this this morning, every week I should see someone talking about, hey, we have a meeting this week, the board members with the community board about, you know, the gun violence that just happened at Burger King, you know, or the kid that was shot in front of my apartment building in front of, you know, mama's fried chicken. Two kids were shot. Uh, The numbers that speak to what uh, Zawadi was saying. So past complaints concluded racial profiling. This is with plain clothed police and excessive force. In, in 2011, which was the peak of stop and frisk era, the NYPD stopped over 680,000 people. Only 9% of them were white and 88% hadn't committed any crimes. NYPD use of stop and frisk was later ruled unconstitutional. Many in law enforcement also saw its implementation as problematic. And Professor Keith Ross at John Jay College is a former NYPD plain cloth, cloth, cloth <laughs> officer. That'd be hilarious. He, was, he just had just a one. cloth on. Uh, <laughs> he says there was an excessive emphasis on productivity and constantly making arrests. So, you know, there was incentive for, you know, doing this, you know, stopping people than actually solving a problem. Now, Mayor Adams has reminded people that when he was in the NYPD, he spoke out against brutality against people of color, and he's promised that this will be different, a different unit. They will be wearing body cameras, and they will focus on criminals, and there will be consequences for police who overstep. But not everyone obviously agrees that. Don't they say that truly every time anything happens with the police? That, wait, we're going to be different? Hey, this isn't the thing that you just saw. Somehow, these people that have been doing this have magically changed and we are going to be better than you've ever seen. I, I'm having a really hard time understanding that. And I'm from a suburb in North Carolina. I've never experienced plainclothes officers. How do they identify themselves? Like if a man just started yelling at me to do something, I don't know that I, I would be like, excuse me, goodbye. So I don't understand. Like, how does that work effectively? So plainclothes officers aren't necessarily those that would do a stop okay. and frisk because, you know, people aren't going to respond to a plainclothes. They're more almost like undercover folks. Uh, they re- they identify themselves if they have to make an arrest or if they have to intervene in, in a situation, they'll pull out their you know badge. They're walking around just kind of casing, I guess, you know, the neighborhood or they'll call in backup if they see something going on. So they're able to kind of penetrate 
regular scenarios, regular everyday scenarios um, that a police officer wouldn't. You know, as soon as you see an officer, you're on your, you automatically have this, you know, response like you're on your best behavior. A plain yeah, clothes officer, <laughs> yeah, a plain clothes officer can go and sit down in the middle of a, a NYCHA or a public housing, you know, park and uh, or parking lot and just be talking with folks and uh, can get information. You know, so they're almost like undercover folks. They have to identify themselves, though, if if they're asked. Like, are you are oh, you Popo? Yeah, are you Popo? You have to say okay. you are. Um, only, but if if you're asked. But you know, I I think I have uh, I might have an unpopular opinion when I say that um, I think uh, that uh, our new mayor's approach to policing t- getting tougher is is might be the right approach. Um, I feel that people, especially, you know, following the joy, all that George Floyd stuff, I felt like people were, were we, we were saying defund the police and we were treating police. At, okay. That was the wrong term. First of all, defund, because that's not really what it was, what was going on, but we were treating police officers at that point as if they were the enemy. And I, as a news person, as a news purveyor, I kind of feel like the police, I, I have a, uh, uh, almost an understanding and kinship a little bit with them because it's like the news and police are the two most ha- easiest things to hate until you need them. Like people always are complaining about police. People are always complaining about news media. And we're the first people you call when you need us. Like I, I know even as black folks, like the first thing to, to drop, we're like 911. Like we want the police there right away. But yet we want to defund them. You know, we hate the media yet. Like all, all of my cohorts, friends, colleagues, they're calling me. Uh, can you do this story on my grandson that just got, you know, a medal for, you know, winning the math contest? Like I'm, I, they're, they call me on a drop of a dime if they want coverage, but yet they want it. They, it's easy to hate them. Like, let's be real. We need our police officers. We need people. We, we, we depend on them. So there has to be a middle ground. It, it, and we always talk in like, polarized terms either this or that like let's let's talk about something in the middle and i think that's what adams is trying to do he's like you know we're going to address the fact that there is profiling but at the same time we need to toughen up some things and and so we have to we got to support you know i want support for being a media person too so we we have to support them in some ways too so i know that's 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 what i was saying (laughs) that's what i was saying you just put it much better thank you (laughs) Well, and, the, you know, to, to Zawadi's point, I think the term defund is provocative and inflammatory and actually um, a false premise because nobody's saying take away all the money. At the end of the day, if, you know, Marina, if you get held up tomorrow, God forbid, the first thing you're going to do is call the police. You want there to be somebody who will follow up, who will protect you and um, make sure that justice is served. I think the reality is what we want is when those folks come to us, that they come to us from a space of respect and that if there's a problem, if they do something that violates our rights, that they're held accountable in the same way a civilian would be held accountable. To me, in a nutshell, that's really that that's all of it. It is it's a both and not an either or. Amen. Yeah, I 
I'm in more aligned with the defund people. And it's not that I want to take away all the money from the cops, but I do think that there are people who are better trained to handle certain types of emergency. And that sort of differentiation should be made when they're dispatching people. Not everyone, not every position that needs someone to come and help ease the tension needs someone with a gun. And so like when you're having mental health check-ins, when you're having some of these things, I don't necessarily think that police are the best people to handle that. Or if we're saying that police are, then we should have some people who are trained in some of these specifics that we're asking police to do. When you're talking about Eric Adams saying, or I don't know which mayor said that we need, the police need help. I do think that that's true. I think that it's not just a training issue like, hey, let's take all the cops that we have who've been trained in the current system and just throw on some day courses where they're supposed to suddenly understand all of mental health, all of sexual harassment, all of this. I don't think that that's functional. I do think that a lot of the money that goes towards the militarization of the police should go towards actually hiring people who are trained throughout who have consistent training on dealing with people with mental illness, on dealing with people from different backgrounds, on dealing with those sorts of things. Does that make sense? That that absolutely makes sense. So for example, here in Chicago, we have uh, a whole team of people, if there's like a mental health situation where mental health experts can be deployed to help support the individual who's in distress and help navigate that situation. So I completely agree with you around the expertise and you're right, like a day training or, you know, doing a one week course (laughs) that doesn't get refreshed regularly. Right. Um, But so really, Kenise, what you just spoke to is about lived experience or, or, you know, high quality, in-depth, comprehensive training. And so I see the same thing in Congress. Like why wouldn't we want people in Congress who have lived experience, who can help when it comes to creating policy that's going to impact people on the ground. If you've got people with lived experience, you sort of uh, lessen that gap from the intent to the practicality of implementing things on the ground. It's the same thing with respect to police. If we have more people with lived experience in our community, you are bringing in folks who already have a sense of respect and understanding and compassion. And what you want to do is add in the police training, but also equip them to deal with a mental health situation. Or what about when people show up and, uh, and it's somebody who is deaf and is signing? Like we've had situations where they're like, put your hands down, but <laughs> the person needs their hands in order to communicate, right? So, you know, it is really about that comprehensive, in-depth training. But I think we have to acknowledge that we need help. If we're in crisis, we need help. It's about the type of help that we get and that accountability. Um, and and I, the reason I said the defund is a, is a misnomer because it may be more about realignment of funding and deploying dollars in a way that is strategic and that is intended to get us to better results on a community level, you know? So now going to Congress, um, and talking about you, you said this, we absolutely have to change laws so that we can create safer communities. What what laws do we need to change and how? How can we get this done? Do you, do you think? Yeah, what, what I was referring to 
uh, was going back to what you raised earlier, Marina, about, you know, the amount of gunfire that I hear on a regular basis in my middle class neighborhood. Right. Like I'm not I, I don't I don't live in the midst of a shooting gallery. I am one block away from a major expressway and there are shootings on the expressway all the time. And so what I was talking about was about gun safety and the fact that I will fight with every breath I have to remove military grade weapons from the hands of civilians. It makes no sense to me. That is not what the second amendment was intended to protect. And so the other issue for us in Chicago is uh, the proliferation of these straw purchases where, you know, Kenise goes out and buys me a gun. I'm, I'm a convicted felon and I'm not allowed to have one, but she goes and buys me a gun and gives it to me. And then I go use it in a crime. Right. Um, it traces back to her. She says, Oh, I don't have it. I didn't, I never had it. I, I lost it. Right. But the reality is she, she got it for my use. The, the other example would be these ghost guns. Um, and this has been an issue. Oh man. So what happens is people, get access to 3D printers and there's programs that allow them to build the component parts of a gun, put the gun together and go out and use it. If you think about it, the only reason that you would go and create component parts of a gun to create a gun is so that it's untraceable. And the only reason you would need it to be untraceable is so that you can commit a crime. And so I don't understand why we even have the blueprint for you to create these component parts. At the very least, they need to have micro stamps on them so that there is some sort of tracing that can be done. Because otherwise, they're just intended to visit mayhem and, and destruction upon our communities. And, you know, a, a very high profile case in recent weeks was where this young boy, 14 years old, was had was creating the guns. He was building them. He like watched stuff online, built the guns, was selling them and sold one to somebody. And uh, something went wrong in the purchase. And the person took the gun and went to shoot at this kid and accidentally shot and killed his 13 year old sister instead. And here this boy was being enterprising at 14 I got lots of other ways we could deploy his skills. What is the pushback that they're seeing in Congress right now for the, the conversation that we're having right now? I, I just don't understand what they're not, what's not getting through. Well, look, you've got the NRA, which is an incredibly powerful lobby. Um, and then there is how do you regulate it? So you can't disband all 3D printers. Uh, and so the, the real question is, how do you regulate it? So, you know, uh, Merrick Garland was here in Chicago a couple weeks ago trying to address this issue. Um, our mayor, our current mayor, our previous mayor, you know, this issue of, of straw purchases has been an issue for some time. Um, we've seen a lot of crimes committed here in Chicago uh, have happened through straw purchases and guns coming in illegally from Indiana, from surrounding states here. Um, there are a number of different levers that we need to activate, uh, but we also have to get to the root cause and why our young men and women are picking up guns in the first place, why there is this steady and ready access to them, uh, but why they're picking them up in 
first place. Now, you you know, I I'm trying to I want to get to this article about um women of color hit especially hard by the pandemic and I think that that also speaks to what we're saying is that if people don't have jobs, right? Then they're going to be out on the street helpless. So you have years of experience in getting people. Can you speak to that? Like what, where are we now with getting people work? Like what's, what's happening? They say that the job rate has unemployment has declined, but for, for black women, not so much. So a couple of things, you're going to take me down a, a bunch of paths. Um, so one, you know, the numbers around employment and unemployment are very difficult to, um, to gauge and sort of pin, you know, pin all your, your, your um, uh, credibility on because it's, it's survey data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's the best we have, but it only includes the people who get counted in the survey. It doesn't include the people who have tapped out of the job market altogether. Right. Uh, and so what the data shows is that our numbers are better, that we have significant, uh, you know, reemployment, significantly lower unemployment than we did at the height of the pandemic. Um, yet we also know that employers are saying that there's a labor shortage, that they can't access people. And so I, I wrote an op-ed piece on this. To me, it's not so much about there being a shortage of people. It's a shortage of people who want to work crappy jobs. People want quality employment. They want career paths. They want opportunities for upward mobility and economic opportunity. And they want the flexibility that allows them to navigate the fact that we've got incredibly high childcare costs. So at some point, are you working to live or live into work? How do you have your kids provided for so that you can go work? Um, can you afford uh, childcare? And do you have medical benefits? Do you have the flexibility that allows you to be a caregiver if you've got a sick or ailing parent, which a lot of us do, and that has only gotten exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, my mother-in-law uh, passed away a couple oh, weeks I'm ago. Sorry. Thank you. Um, during the holiday season. And she got to the hospital and um, after a couple of days of testing, found out that she had metastatic cancer throughout her entire body. And, you know, she went in after having taken a fall in her home, expecting that we were going to get some answers and she was going to go home. Well, she left the hospital and went to hospice care. Right. But here's but here's why I tie this all in. Because people had to delay and forestall medical treatment because the hospitals needed to deal COVID, with yeah. critical COVID patients. And so people who needed what they thought were elective procedures, people who um, had other health issues and had to wait to go get treatment are now going in and they are very, 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 very sick. Right. And so, and we're sitting, you know, my mother-in-law is just a, an example. She's one of many cases. I've seen this happen time and time again in recent months. So, we have a number of issues that are preventing people from wanting to go back to the way things were in terms of the labor force. 
So I don't like the language that claims that we have a labor shortage or that people don't want to work. It's not that people don't want to work. People are juggling a lot of competing interests and priorities, and people don't want to work at jobs that don't allow them the flexibility to manage their lives. Yes. Okay, this is what you said was fantastic. Have you guys seen the memes on Twitter where it's like a boss texting something completely outrageous and people just being like, well, then I quit. Like, I, I don't have to do like, why would I subject myself to a system that does this to me all the time where I have to be on call all the time to an organization that doesn't give me benefits, that pays me minimum wage in a lot of like in New York, it's $15 an hour, but for seven fifty, I have to always be ready to answer your call and hop to work at a, the drop of a hat. Yeah. That's the people who are saying no one wants to work have not worked those jobs. But, and let's talk about what $15 an hour really is. Let's, let's be real clear. You're talking around roughly $31,000 a year. That, who lives off of that in New York and where? I mean, you know, <laughs> folks with big money in New York live in shoeboxes. I'm sorry. I, I love, <laughs> listen, no, I like sure. New York a lot, y'all. <laughs> I really like to come and visit. But um, yeah, the, you know, it, it, it's it, $30,000 does not go a long way. It doesn't go a long way in Chicago. It doesn't go a long way in New York. It doesn't go a long way in, in San Francisco, right? So our our wage rate has got to come up. And businesses know that because a lot of the employers are putting premiums on their talent pipeline right now by increasing the wages that they're offering and adding in bonuses. And so Marina, to your point about us as Black women being hardest hit by the pandemic, we were overrepresented in the service industry. The service industry took the hardest hit. People had closer proximity to folks. They contracted COVID at higher rates. They earned the lowest wages. They had the least amount of medical benefits. And so we died at higher rates than other people did. Which is what they never mention when they say we die from COVID. They never (laughs) talk about that. They always just make this blanket statement, which pisses me off because it's, 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 sorry, I don't know if you can hear that. Is that a drone going by your window? <laughs> this is what I deal with. Oh my God. I was just on the community. Like I see, I go to the community board about stuff like that. And um, anyway, that's a whole other issue, but I'm going to get them. I'm going to get this restaurant, not them. This guy is just working. That was just temporary, but, but yeah. Um, it's just it really speaks to a much more serious issue overall when you see the disparities of black individuals dying from covid and when you know dr falsey would say you know in the very beginning that black people were dying for covid for more i was just like um uh i was annoyed because i'm like you're not speaking to this bigger issue that's going on this is a perfect time to really address this and i and i hear the conversations have gotten better but initially, the ignorance was there. This could be a whole hour about the Chicago public school system. But let if we could get to the root of what is going on with the Chicago. I won't talk too much about Laura. Like, I know that's your girl. I see you. I see you scared to talk about Laura. I was, it's not about 
it's not about Lori. It's not about her. Uh, the mayor, but I can see I it's say. a difficult one. But no, this but is good exercise. It's a difficult one because I have kids in the school system too, <laughs> right? So anyway, well, go ahead. What was your question going to be, Marina? <laughs> <laughs> well, how do we bridge this gap between the Chicago public school system? And the union, the teachers unions and Laura Lightfoot, like it seems like they're at a stand that they're like really fighting. And then we had our mayor jump in and say, um, this is not Chicago. This is New York. You know, he made a dig. He said, you know, this where we are communicating, we communicate with each other because we're both emotionally intelligent. Oh, wait, no, this is. Yeah, it was rude. Just you don't why, why you you don't even have to repeat that, Marina. It was just rude. He did. There was no reason. You know how um you know how the old folks used to say, "Keep my name out your mouth," <laughs> <laughs> right? He didn't have to put our name in his mouth on that. He could have just gone on and had his New York conversation. There was no reason in the world to invoke Chicago, and you know. Okay, so. But, you know, the reason I bring this up, it's it's so full circle because I just had Troy LaRavier on the podcast. And as well, I had him on because he had just come to to New York to see about the the unions in New York City because they don't have unions for principals in Chicago. And I'm just like, there's there is something to the it's in the ether. Is that what you call it? No, I think there is a principals union in Chicago. I thought he was in it. No, there is no union, uh, but he's the president. He's the president of the Principals Association, but they don't have a union. I got you. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, I got it. Um, So, uh, so listen, there's there are a lot of challenges. Um, It is very polarized. It is is not unlike Congress in terms of you know just the the um, binary nature of what's what we're seeing play out. my real question is, where are the kids in all this? Like, the kids have to be centered. I think I understand all of the different sides of the issue. And, you know, and then add to it, for me, the additional complication is that I have a special needs child. And my daughter is blind. So for you to say you're going to educate her remotely creates a whole new set of issues we have teachers, thankfully, who went above and beyond during uh, during COVID, during the shutdown, and literally brought supplies to our house every Sunday evening so that she could be prepared for school. But it required a lot of technology, a lot of extra support, and a lot of my time breaking away from work in order to sit with her to make sure she could access her materials fully. Um, the other piece that you know, the mayor considers often, and, and this has been considered by every mayor, is that a lot of our children get their primary meals at school. That our schools are a warming center for our kids who may not have electricity or gas. Well, if I could just say this real fast, we had still passed out food, even though the schools were closed. Did they do that yes, in Chicago? We did the same. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We did the same. When the schools were closed, uh, families could come and get, I think it was three or four days worth of meals uh, at a time so that they didn't have to, you know, come every single day to get something. And you could go to any public school. You didn't have to go to the school in your neighborhood. Uh, you know, so my kids both go to schools that are not right here. You know, I mean, they're 
they're, they're not our neighborhood schools, right? And so, um, so that was that was a great benefit as well. I think everybody is doing the best they can with what they have to work with, um, but all of these debates have got to center the children first and foremost. Uh, it was not helpful for our kids to be home for four days. Um, by the same token, in my daughter's school, I. I sent the principal a message and I was like, I feel like I'm sending her into a Petri dish every day because something like only 30% of the kids were vaccinated and only 13% were actually volunteering to do the weekly testing. I don't think that's something the union's going to change. Right. And so I understand their concerns for their safety, uh, but I'm also gravely concerned for my children's safety too. I'm also concerned for their emotional and social well-being that my son is a junior in high school and hasn't had a normal school year since he was in eighth grade. That's yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot. These kids are different too. I hear a lot of people saying that. So I guess, you know, cause it says here they did have students demanded. They did have a walkout. What does that mean? It was, it was a limited walkout. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a, it was a couple few kids. Um, I know my son, my son was like, mom, they walked out today, but it wasn't really organized. And so I just decided to not participate. He's like, I'm all for us being safe and <laughs> testing and everything. He's like, but it just seemed like it was all over the place. I mean, there, there were definitely, there were walkouts. And l- let me say this. I support the fact that kids want to be activists and advocates for themselves. I love the fact that they are being advocates for their own well-being. There is something to their walkout in the fact that I was talking to Troy LaRavier about this, about the schools being dirty in Chicago, like dirt, like this, this maintenance issue. So, and that's not at all the schools. And let me be also clear. We have hundreds of schools. Um, You know, it's my understanding that there's some contract issues with, with some of the schools. um, And we've seen that. We've seen that in the past. I do think that that's ridiculous, that nobody should have to uh, go to school and be educated in a space where you don't have just minimum standards of cleanliness, right? And and those basic standards to me mean that you can go to a bathroom and that bathroom is clean and you don't have to worry about accessing toilet paper and soap. I mean, it's just, those are basics, you know? So I, I definitely understand rejecting those. I wouldn't accept that in my children's school. And I don't think any parents should accept that in their kids' school. That is a, a just a bare minimum level of, of, frankly, respect and hygiene. And our kids deserve to have access to beautiful structures and safety and cleanliness, period. So that, you know, I, I guess it's the students are sort of you know, they, they've been locked in and these students are s- sort of learning how to exercise because they've been seeing how we, this is how you speak out against, you know, you get out there. Now, Zawadi, can, talk to your relationships with your, because Zawadi and I both don't have kids. We've, we passed on that. <laughs> <laughs> we opted into being aunts. Yes. <laughs> I'm TT. <laughs> but so I do you see any change in in your nephews or nieces in terms of this this last generation how they're different 
Yeah, just so if from the pandemic and just coming out of it, they're very oh. different, especially when it comes to online learning. I know I talked to my niece and she told me my one niece said to me, I can't do this again for another year. She's in the suburbs. She's in Park Forest. So that's completely different from Chicago public school systems, which, by the way, they never closed down. Um, Karen, the Park Forest area never turned down. Right. It just it all it just all depends. And, you know, I think that that's also a frustration because, um, you know, I sit on the board of a, of a private school that my son attended for elementary school and they closed down, but then they had hybrid and they do testing and they just had a lot of other resources that they were able to bring in. Part of, I think, one of the challenge with challenges with CPS is that there is this sort of um, diffuse you know, there's like the central office, but then there's still this diffuse power structure in terms of the local school councils. And, um, you know, there's this certain level of autonomy that creates a level of inconsistency from site to site. So, Zawadi, do you, do you find that they are, are they dealing with the change well or are they, do you see any differences? Or maybe they're just outstanding kids and you don't see anything. No, I, what I've seen from my nieces and also from just young folks in general is this, this, this disconnection there, they seem um, over it and it might just be because they're at that 21 to 25 year age and they don't want to speak to auntie anymore, but, uh, and that might be the disconnection I'm experiencing, (laughs) but I see it. They want to talk to me. I don't know about you. (laughs) Tonight is tea. Tonight I talked to, they're like, are we doing this or what? (laughs) No, my niece is disconnected. Um, and I see a lot of young folks, they seem sort of, because I deal with a lot of interns too, and I bring in inter, intern writers. <clears throat> I just feel like this, this generation has disconnected from us. I'm speaking generally, not everyone, but I don't know. They are, they seem over it. They seem over us. They seem over the patriarchy. They seem over how we've handled everything from climate crisis to, you know, gender equity to racial, you know, discord. They're, they're so over it. They're, they're now dealing with a pandemic um, that came from out of nowhere that hasn't been really explained. They're dealing with um, their school being upended, their work, not getting, being able to get work. Um, being told they have to go to college, but then they're going to have to take on these loans. Like they're so over what they've been handed. And um, they think we've made a mess in general of uh, life for them. Uh, A lot of that is very short-sighted. Of course, we know as, you know, women of a certain age that, um, that have been through everything that there's a lot more to it than what they're seeing. But in just from their 20 short years, um, I've just seen them disconnecting and, and saying, I'm just going to go over here and try to work out what I can. Like well, I have three brilliant nieces and two brilliant nephews, all of them, all eggheads, smart nerds. And um, they opted out of college and they've um, moved away and we're not really sure what they're doing. <laughs> and we have to let them be adults in their own way because you know, so I, my, that's been my experience. And and I've even seen that with, you know, my interns, they come on, they're like, say la vie, whatever. They're very laissez-faire about stuff. And um, they're not going to get all riled up the way we do. But at the same time, I see a level of depression amongst them that is amongst young folks that I've never, ever seen before, like in my life. So, um, yeah. 
I think it's hard for them to be hopeful in a lot of ways. Um, they don't seem to be particularly optimistic about things. The ones who are optimistic are the ones who believe that they have the power to create change. So those are the ones, Marina, who, who are walking out of class, you know, who are saying, I can take a stand and I can see, you know, see change coming. Um, it is, it is very hard. I, I said jokingly to somebody, but, you know, as you all know, as you comedians know, <laughs> with every joke, there is a grain of truth. I am only grateful that my children chose different times during the pandemic to have their crises because had both of them been in crisis at the same time, I would have lost my mind and they would have had three of us put away over here. So um, it was you know, they each went through their rough patch in, in different, different points. Um, I think the one thing that we have a responsibility to equip our children with, which is something that our ancestors imbued us all with, is resilience. We have to help them understand that they absolutely have a right to get to a place where they cannot deal and where they need to be poured into and supported and buoyed and lifted up. But they need to understand that that space will come, that that these challenges are not, what, what they say, trouble don't last always, right? That you, there is uh, an ebb and flow to life and there are going to be low points, but you're going to continue to ride that crest. It's going to crest into a, a positive point um, because otherwise we, We'll continue to see the rise in suicides that we're seeing. Um, my mother always taught me that suicide was a permanent solution to a temporary challenge. And um, we really have to make sure that our kids know that with every fiber of their being and that they have a soft place to land when they need to land, that we don't just tell them to buck it up and keep going. Um, and that we empower them to know that they actually do have tools and keys to make change in this world. Oh, well, thank you. That, you know, that's a wonderful sentiment. Like, it's, it's so strong and so good. And it's, a, I, I know I don't want to keep you. I'm trying to find a way out for you because I, I could talk to you forever. Seriously. Thank you. Well, you, you can have me back. I, well, I definitely want to have you back, Karina. <laughs> <laughs> yes, give us where our listeners can find you and a friends like us. Oh, you can find me at votekaren.com. That's Karen with an I, vote, K-A-R-I-N.com is my website to learn more about my policies and my candidacy. And friends like us, man, with friends like us, we can move mountains. Friends like us can change this world. Thank you. <laughs> Woo! Right. You're free to go, Karen. So I know nice you gotta you. go. So thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you so much, ladies. It's a joy nice to, to meet, meet you. you all. Thank you, Karen. And good luck to you. Thank you, guys. Be well. Wow. Bye-bye. What did you think about her? I think she's amazing. She was amazing. She was so great to listen, like to listen. She's such a politician, even though she says she doesn't want to be a politician. But I'm glad that we have that sort of politician that's going to be representing Chicago because she does seem real. And she reminds me a little bit of Cori Bush. Like, I love Cori Bush's way and how she's, you know, so of the people. So I think I'm, I'm excited. I hope she makes it. I like that, even though my opinion was different about the police, that she was able to, like, really clearly articulate how these ideas all can come together to work towards a better police in the future. And that 
I think we really need people like that to talk to younger people just because so many of my friends are leftist are socialist, are like this. And most politicians just completely dismiss them out of turn. And so they're like, no, we are stuck in our ways because these people won't hear us. But having someone who actually does say, I can incorporate what you're saying into what it is that I am talking about, that is so meaningful to it me. It is. Wow. She was calm. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, like, like just hearing you say that, Kanice, gives me a lot of hope. Actually. Yeah, it does. Because, you know, I hear from young folks all the time that are so polarized on this end of the spectrum. And I spend more time trying to convince them <clears throat> how they should see it another way. But hearing you say that, it makes me realize it shouldn't be necessarily about convincing them, to my opinion, but finding a way to make it work for, you know, both. That's very true. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder how that can be valuable because I do feel disconnected from the younger generation. And so it's like, that's, that's a valuable. And they feel, uh, I'm not young, (laughs) but I do know that people feel very, I am not. You're you're a Gen Z. If you're under 30, you're Gen Z. Oh, you think I'm under 30? (laughs) Well, you're at least a millennial, but yeah, you look under yeah, you, you, look, you, do, you look under 30, though. You do. Tell every casting agent you've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> I want to work more. Yeah, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. But it is, it, it, millennials too, though. I mean, it's true. It's yeah. Like, it's the same with millennials, yeah. Why you, and I ain't millennials. We're Gen X. <laughs> Gen X is right now, Gen X is in, is in the driver's seat. So, girl, claim yeah. it. We got pushed into the driver's seat without even realizing it because for the I'm serious because because for the longest, we were always looking up to like the you know, we always had bosses. We were always looking up to the other generation. And when we turned around like one day, we were like all of us, all the people, my all my peers were all in the driver's seat. So it's like, you know, it's a good place to be. So like instead of being like, "Er, no, do the best you can in terms of shaping and making the best choices and calling the shots because we're oh, like this neighborhood. Oh, <laughs> boy. You have no idea. I mean, this business is, you know, I like when I went to that community board, I, it, it, see, she what I loved about Karen was that how about that I called her Karina for like a solid five minutes (laughs) but I was also because I get so nervous because when I have someone that that smart and that strong I want to make sure like I'm presenting them right and then I get nervous and I just mess it up no Marina you ask really good questions I was like whoa once once I get into the groove yes but my initial is just I guess I get so nervous about messing stuff up you know but she's so her calmness that's the thing like her reply was not robotic it's not like a just uh like you were saying Kenise. it's like she had an ability to answer you because she did have answers you know it's like i i don't have that about myself like i will go nuts on a person (laughs) because when i was on that community board and this guy you know was trying to tell me that our accusations about the sound was like wrong or whatever I lost it. I said, listen, you're a white owned business. I'm a black woman. You ain't moving me out of the neighborhood. My neck started rolling. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even control. You should have thrown, you should have thrown it. And I'm from Chicago. When people just downright deny the experience of someone else, that is the thing that 
quickly turns it from like a conversation a to fight. like a super combative thing. Yeah. Like you've got to like telling you that you're not hearing noise. That's what right would someone have to do that? that to say that? Oh, that's what? oh, he was making an, you know, and here's the thing. I brought like two other white women there. Like, so here I am making it a black and white thing. But I was like, don't make us into hysterical women. We're not hysterical women. We know what we hear. We know that it's going on. You know, I I told him, I said, I'm doing the polite thing by going to the community board, but I can make it nasty. You know, if you want, I could go to I could go to the press. I could go to, um, you know, Christina Greer works for the Harlem, the oldest. I could do all that Amsterdam news. I could do all that. You know what's sad to me? It's a lot of time. And I could go and protest in front of your restaurant and and let all your black customers know exactly what's going on inside that you really don't care about the people who live in this community. And it was so interesting because the woman, she's like, we do all of this like outreach and we do this. And I was like, stop it. While all these other black owned. Now, the, the reality is the other black owned businesses in Harlem are struggling much more. While you're building upon building upon the other black owned businesses are struggling. They're not getting the loans that you're getting. Okay. They're not getting the forgiveness you're getting. So let's just, you know, Hey, last thing I'm going to let you do is tell me that I need to move because I don't like the noise. It's not going to happen. Right. I'm going to fight it. Good. But Marina, your interview skills as a woman who's been interviewing now for 20 years, your interview skills are getting really good. Thank You're asking you. really good questions. Thank you, Zawadi. That makes me feel so good. Yeah. Someone, you know, it's it is a thing like as a comedian, you're you. It, it's a different skill to listen. Comedians don't listen. Right, Kanice? <laughs> I'm I'm learning how to do it. Yes. I mean, we did. We had a Kenise has a great show that I did last week that I cried on and I made her cry. What's the show? This show is called Make Me Cry, right? Uh, it's called Make Yourself Cry because I'm I don't cry very much. And I interview people and I ask them to show me what makes them cry to see if it makes me a bad crier cry. And so every week I have different guests on and they show me just what makes them cry. And sometimes it's happy. Sometimes it's sad. Sometimes it's moving. Sometimes it's kind of disturbing but overall like it starts with funny because it's always comedians and then goes to like let's get into some emotional depth and i made her cry you did and i haven't cried in months on that show so i can make truly cry my you story. can what you you can't make me cry oh i can make people cry I can bitch people please cry. i'm from chicago <laughs> <laughs> it was a great show though, Kadisa. I had a great time. Yeah, you were I don't usually let it go over an hour because I'm like, it's an hour long show. Everybody knows this stuff. But you and I talked for like an hour and twenty, an hour and thirty, because you're so you were so interesting. And I was like, oh, as Aww. I need to know Marina. more. Like and I was crying. So, yeah. It's my little tr- I can't even mention it because it'll make me cry. It's one of the things that makes me cry like that. I, I and I knew I was like, Oh, this is my acting tool. If I ever need to cry, this is what I use. Cause I've I've often envied actors who can cry like on the drop of a like they can just do that. I don't know. I've t- I've gone to acting school. I've never. I, I, they've told me access something. I was like, there's nothing. <laughs> like you like you're saying, Kenise. I'm like, there's nothing that's going to be. I have to work no, up to some tears. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. 
But you, you, you girls, you both look very happy, healthy. And like Zawadi, I'm so glad to see you because like I was saying, I, I saw you on Instagram and I see you doing, you know, stuff to make sure, you know, everything is happy and healthy and fun. And I love following you on Instagram and seeing your stories. I haven't been on Instagram in forever. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> there was there was some, you were doing some dancing and that I was saw like you months ago. But OK, <laughs> I still I follow. I see you. I like to see us thrive and we're the same age. And you do dancing, too. You yeah. Marina, Marina can dance. And the first time I saw that, saw her doing the house, I was like, she can dance and she's you ain't told me you could dance. I'm like, that's it was new information. But now I'm like, go, Marina. Go, Marina. She get into the house. I'm like. <laughs> well, I have a very Chicago, you know, style. And you dance. should. Good. I love it. You know, I'm very happy. You saw Tina. Very house. Well, Tina Jordan was there. Did you see her? Or no. Tina Fakhrid? Now Tina Fakhrid. No. Yeah, yeah. Tina was on there dancing with me for the for my birthday. We I got to like check a, it out. We did an end of year dance. And then I did uh, uh, for my birthday. Tina, What's your birthday? Christmas. Oh, I, I'm going to mm-hmm. go back to the Christmas post. OK, so yeah. Tina came over to Isis's house and then we did a video for like my birthday. I yes. got to check it out. I haven't yeah. seen it. And even Godfrey was like, go, go. (laughs) I got to check that out. I used to go dancing in the clubs like every Wednesday. And then I just was like, when the pandemic hit, I was like, oh, no, where am I going to go? I used to go every week. And the more you go, the better you get at dancing, just like anything else. Yes. So it's like, you know, I was practicing. You know, you get older and you think, oh, I don't have this anymore. But I would go to the club and I'd see people there, you know. Oh, over 50, like yes. 60s in their dance. I saw a woman in a wheelchair, you know, and with her walker. Love you it. Know, standing up and just doing this. Yep. Yep. Just moving the shoulder. <laughs> just moving and getting it. You know, it ain't ever over. OK, just got it. I'm at December 16th. I got to find this. Here you are. <laughs> December 17th. You're dancing. I love it, Marina. Here you are. December 22nd. You're dancing. <laughs> that was it. That was that had to be it. This December 22nd? Uh-huh. Because I'm starting it off and then Tina comes Yes, in. you're starting it off. <laughs> yeah, and Tina, what Tina come in. Tina gets, I love gets down, too. Ooh, Marina, you better get it, girl. <laughs> I, got those, I got those thick thighs now. <laughs> girl, thick thighs, what do they say? Thick thighs make something, fries or something. Save lives? Yeah, thick thighs save lives, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Are you sure this is the one with your friend? Oh, wait, here she comes. Yeah, yeah, there she is. You know Tina. I do not know Tina. You don't re- you remember if you saw, you see, you don't see her and you don't remember Tina Jordan? The name sounds familiar. She used to have short haircut. She used to be like, she used to kind of have, she was a Delta. She's still a Delta. <laughs> I, I'm not into, uh, I don't see this. She renounced her title. She's no longer. <laughs> was this in Chicago? Mm-hmm. I don't do the sorority thing. I was never a sorority girl. Me either. So Me. whenever, whenever I see them, my sister is, you know, AKA. So I have to respect that, but it's a good connection, I guess. It's a good resource. So for all of you, AKAs and deltas and zetas and Sigma, ga- good for you. <laughs> so Sigma Gamma Row. did you know, um, Andre Leon Talley, his passing is a sad one. Yeah. Fashion editor who operated, 
Without the filter of corporate PR, he made broad, extravagant declarations like, we're living in such, such a vulgar age. He was like the pharaoh of fabulosity who put himself on his own best dress list and eviscerated celebrities whose red carpet ensembles weren't up to his standards. He created an image of himself in a fashion being bold, loud, gay, opulent, and shrewd, but championed comfort and affordability, dissing uncomfortable, impractical shoes, which I love because I, I never understood heels. Um, I mean, good, good for you if you wear heels. Um, sharing a love for Target, Kmart, Walmart, Sam's Club, and stores alike, and saying that you can be aristocratic without having been born into an aristocratic family. That's true. I believe that. I love it. So let's go out on a, where our listeners can find you, the BK Reader. Okay. So you can find me on uh, at www. Do we say www anymore? No. <laughs> BKreader.com. Also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just put in BK Reader, you can find me. And with friends like us, we can create the new, new normal. Yes. Woo! That was very good, and I am intimidated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you can find me at kanisemobley.com on Instagram and Twitter. And on Make Yourself Cry, which is on Twitch, every Thursday at 10 p.m. Also, I'm recording an album soon, so please check my website for show dates, uh, because, man, oh, man, if no one's there, it will be very embarrassing, so please come. Kanise, where are you practicing your set? So I'm running it in Boston, Valentine's Day weekend. I'm doing it at Club Coming on the 18th of February. I'm doing a weekend in Bristol, Tennessee at Blue Ridge Comedy Club at the beginning of March. And I'm trying to line up a few other dates before the recording, which is two shows at Union Hall on the 29th of April. And with friends like us, we can understand a variety of viewpoints, incorporate them into our own and become better members of society. Amen. That was yes. very good. What were you worried about? Because I thought that up on the spot because I was like, shit, I got to do better. I got to do something. I got to sound like an idiot. <laughs> and now I don't know what to do. Look at that. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. Still Stacks. I'll be at the Still Stacks at, in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, February 12th. And I'll be in Princeton, New Jersey doing a show. Just go to my website to make sure those dates are right. <laughs> And uh, also every Saturday, and you're both welcome to come every Saturday on YouTube. I do a preview and a review of the podcast with my assistant, Evelyn Frick. And who is, by the way, she's my young, you know, person that I like. I love to mentor. Um, and she's just opened up so much. I love it. And also with my wacky friend, Dave Jeskow. There, you know, and we talk about the podcast and we also engage the audience. So if you ever wanted to talk to me about something from an episode, it's a great place to go on my YouTube channel. And with friends like us, somehow we find a way to meet in the middle. Yes. Hell yes. <laughs> was that good? It was good. Yes. <laughs> All right. Check, Check us out. out. Okay, thank you.